You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Our lecturer today is Medina Jiraeva. Medina defended her PhD in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She is a lecturer of elementary Uzbek, and she has previously taught both Tajik and Uzbek languages throughout Sethi. Originally from Bukhara, Uzbekistan, Medina grew up in a multilingual environment of the city, which eventually contributed to her choice of profession. Her doctoral research examines lived experiences of being and becoming multilingual at the nexus of language, education, policy, and identity in the context of post-Soviet Central Asia and transnational migration. She has published on the issues of non-nativeness, language policy, and morality in multilingual Central Asian communities. In her lecture today, titled uh, Language Ideologies and Identities of Multilingual Youth in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, Medina will talk about her eight-year-long research on multilingualism among Central Asian young adults. She will share her fieldwork experience in both Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, where she collected narrative data from over 60 student participants. Medina will also share a number of her key findings around the themes of morality, belonging, and education. Medina, thank you so much for speaking today. Thank you for this wonderful introduction, Sarah, and hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining me um, in this lecture, and I guess we're just going to start. So you see my slides, right? Um, the slideshow, and then you can hear me, right? Can you just confirm? I can see you and hear you, everyone. Um, can you just type something in the chat if you can see and hear um, the presentation okay? Uh -huh. Yes, for some reason when I entered the slideshow mode, I don't really see the blackboard. Sounds okay. like everyone can hear and see. Okay, so um, basically, well, this is a picture of Madison. <laughs> So if you were here this summer um, having classes in the classroom that we could have spent some of our classes here on the terrace. Anyway, so let's keep going. Um, so basically I have, um, uh, I have started my doctoral program in 2012, but I've already been interested in the sociolinguistic context of Central Asia, even when I was doing my master's. And, Starting from 2011, well, 2012 was the first time when I collected my pilot data with uh, Central Asians who live here in, in the US. And then I thought that I wanted to look at the, actually, uh, at the multilingualism in Central Asia. So that's how um, kind of my interest uh, started uh, on this topic. And I have well, gone to Central Asia to collect my data. And uh, well, I am in curriculum and instruction, and um, I did my minor in uh, uh, like Rika, so it's Russia, um, East European, and Cent Russian East European Central Asian Studies. But that's not like my major. My major is uh, 
education and language. Uh, I just did it within the context of Central Asia. So the purpose, my biggest goal was to somehow have a, this holistic approach to the study of multilingual learners. And I was inspired to do it because as I came to the US myself, I have noticed that there, are, there is just certain discourse to talk about learners. And multilingual learners are usually English language learners uh, or usual bilingual learners. and uh, the literature on multilingualism and on the studies that are conducted within the US or even outside of US uh, students are often seen within the classroom or within um, or teachers are analyzed or teacher role is analyzed in uh, next to students uh, learning right however there was there were very limited studies that would look at many different factors that could uh, in shape one's multilingual journey as a, as a multilingual person and the language use and language choice. And so by holistic, that, that's what I mean, kind of taking into account broader sociopolitical, historical, cultural, and economic factors. And um, also I talk about this idea of be, being multilingual and becoming multilingual. And I think because I focus on lived experiences, right? So I'm interested at how students in Central Asia have come to know the languages they know. And my kind of primary hypothesis is that it's not just because they learned these languages and that, and that there were many other decisions involved in the process. So I talk about that process and the process is never ending right this idea of becoming so you're always becoming multilingual maybe better multilingual maybe worse but you're always in that process of becoming and uh during the interview for example when i'm talking to participants i position them as multilinguals and that's how they position themselves so that's kind of a ver um, being multilingual right at that moment um and i chose to do lived experiences because i feel like the there is a lack of storyline when we look at language learners. And uh, again, within the US context, um, we often talk about English language learners as, let's say, uh, immigrants from Mexico. But that's really uh, very rarely we talk about their lives before the US, right? So what, um, what types of languages they used when they were in Mexico, what types of decisions they made, what the types of decisions their parents made. So all of these um, uh, factors are usually overlooked in research. So um, that was my goal. Um, to focus on and basically significance of my research is in so first of all using I use this um, special temporal lens which is called Kranatop and it comes from Bakhtin, Mikhail Bakhtin and he was a Russian uh, literary scholar and um, this is something that is rarely used in education in the field of education but it's quite common in linguistics um, also emphasizing emic perspective. Emic perspective is when you look at, uh, when you examine different ideas from the point of view of your participants, so kind of foregrounding their understanding of uh, their lives and what they um, put forward as important rather than the researchers view, right? Um, also, uh, revisiting the method of linguistic competence, and um, I can talk a lot about it, but linguistic competence, it could be in terms of just saying like a native speaker or non-native. So I kind of 
try to challenge these ideas through my research because in Central Asia, as you might know, sometimes people have a hard time even saying what is native, um, which language is native, right? Um, and because, of course, Central Asia is still under research and under theorized um, context, especially for uh, sociolinguistics and for language education. People have written a lot, like top-down studies where they have analyzed uh, documents like policy on language policy. However, there isn't much empirical data where you go and do field work and collect data talking to people. And of course, largely that was due to certain limitations um, to travel to the region, right? And um, also looking at so language education policy and how that affects uh, again um, multilingual journey, journeys of students in Central Asia. And uh, don't try to think too hard, but I thought I will just show you the concept map, so I'm not going into theory too much. But basically what I'm looking at, what I'm studying are the narratives of lived experiences, right? So that's what, uh, and in this narratives, participants are talking about their attitudes towards the languages they speak, about uh, and about their practices with those languages. So what they do, what they have done, what they want to do with those languages. And as I'm analyzing these narratives, um, I'm looking at different chronotopes and these conus uh, pictures that you see to your right. Uh, shows that uh, chronotope idea where basically different spaces and times can come into one um, nexus and that's how you can this is I believe this is only how you can analyze the story because at that very moment when they were telling me that's what they believed in and as I'm analyzing the attitudes and practice of course I realize that these attitudes and practices have been shaped by circulating discourses. Therefore, they produce certain ideologies and identities. Um, so my data uh, come from 80, maybe even more than 80 hours of audio recorded data. I cannot tell for sure because I have interviewed a lot of people. Um, and I have been there a couple times. And so over the years, it just has been really hard just to count all the hours. Um, but I've been very successful just uh, having keeping my data safe. And um, I've also, when I did field work in Central Asia, I uh, wrote like a, a personal diary where I wrote any observations that, uh, of my participants, both during the interviews I had with them, but I also collected data outside of inter individual interviews. So some of the data came from focus groups where I interviewed like more than three people. And I've also tried to spend more time with my study participants who were willing to do so. And so, for example, would invite me to their house, um, you know, for dinner. Then I could talk with their parents and see see how they interact with their parents or what they what topics they discuss when they have dinner. And when I was in Kazakhstan um, doing fieldwork in 2015, uh, so the time when I was in Kazakhstan was actually the Eid, so Ramadan. Um, time those 40 days so I was very lucky because um, in Kazakhstan people invite for dinner for iftar so that's when they open their fasting um, to eat so I was very lucky because I got invited to a lot of houses and that way I was also able to collect a lot of kind of naturally occurring talk 
and also just having lunches and uh, dinners with students or students and their teachers. So I had a lot of those opportunities, both in Kazakhstan and in Uzbekistan. Um, so of course, even though I interviewed a lot of people in both countries, there were perhaps 25 of them that I really kept close contact with. And um, uh, so I went, I went to Central Asia in 2015, well, 2012, 2015. So I was there from 2017 to 2019. So in those years, I was able to interact with them in person. Uh, but also, we have I've used Skype, Facebook, and email to just keep in touch with them and know so what is happening in their lives, where their languages are taking them next, and what has changed in their career post education. So uh, these are still ongoing, basically. It's an ongoing study. Um, and my so my the, my participants were students. I say young adults or youth. Uh, well, I consider 20 plus still to be used, but um, so yeah, my students were probably uh, between 18 to 34 years old, and I uh, purposefully focused on this uh, group of students uh, because I was really interested to look at the gener at generation that have maybe lived during Soviet times just a little bit, and then experienced also this post-Soviet uh, period in Central Asia. So pretty much uh, someone like me right so although some of my participants were older than me too but um they experienced education in both periods and this is something i was um interested in um and uh, uh, they measured in different subjects so law uh, international affairs languages. so i had uh, students of different majors Okay, um, and here's just a picture saying some. So I, when I analyzed my data, I did use uh, qualitative like software for data analysis. And I can tell you more about different softwares if you are interested. Um, but because I'm looking at stories and stories are long and you have to analyze them within this bigger narrative, I felt that just traditional method of just putting data that I want to focus on, this this is for my dissertation only, on the wall and kind of looking at it uh, in this way was uh, more useful for me. Um, and maybe let me talk also a little bit about the just my fieldwork experience. Um, I When I collected data in, um, in the US for the first time, so I didn't have any fieldwork work experience i just recruited my participants um, uh, just through personal connections um, and i just interviewed them on skype talking about the identities and language use uh, in the us but also how it has been changing right and um, for my doctoral program so first time uh, with the help of critica uh, also i went to central asia to kazakhstan uh, where I was a visiting researcher um, at Kimap University, so that's like English medium university located in Almaty. And so again, through connections, um, I, I was able to recruit participants and many people were willing to participate because they all found my topic to be interesting since what I'm writing about is basically how great they are and that they know many languages. That's 
right? So that's uh, kind of how I presented it. And well, this was true because I really wanted people to know about uh, multilingualism in Central Asia. So very, uh, a lot of students were enthusiastic. I also collected data in um, Astana as well, and because I knew some students from Nazarbayev University. And because I was also acquainted with um, teachers at these universities, uh, there were times when, for example, I had informal lunches with teachers and students. And so those conversations always also led to really interesting discussions. Um, in Uzbekistan, uh, I also, the same, the same story, I have collected data in Bukhara and um, Samarkand and in Tashkent uh, with students who go to like local government national universities and those who attend English medium universities and in terms of my positionality I think that um, there is a lot that I gained as a being a Central Asian myself because well because my participants had similar uh, similar what is it, biography or similar qualifications or historicities uh, as I did. So I could relate to a lot of stories. Um, and if they were talking about certain ideas and they didn't really mention it explicitly, I also knew what they were talking about, right? So, and that I think what made my participants comfortable. Um, it's not always easy to collect any type of data especially recorded in central asia because people are usually they do not like um to be recorded right because then they are afraid that someone might listen to them or see them so in that case uh what i did was not have consent forms so they didn't have to sign anything and that way they stay anonymous and also in interviews we just never use the uh, names right so so that way i kind of guaranteed that they were anonymous Although my interviews didn't really bring up any super controversial, controversial issues. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think I was uh, regarded more as an insider, and that really helped me a lot uh, with my research. Okay, so, um, so let's move on to the data, because I really want you to have a look at it. And of course, there are a lot of findings uh, in my research, and there are a lot of angles through which I look at the stories, but I thought that for the purposes of SESI and our students, I think these, uh, the three findings that I would like to share with you uh, might be interesting to you. Um, so first one, I wanted to talk about this idea of morality. Uh, and my students know I talk, talked about it many times in our Uzbek class as well. So um, the idea of morality originally, uh, in Uzbekistan and in Kazakhstan comes from the Soviet, in Soviet times, for example, there was, uh, uh, there were two different words, right? So there was education, formal education, and education that you get, you, that you receive from parents, like upbringing, like good manners. And those two words in Russian would be образование and воспитание. So the same uh, words are distinguished in our languages in Kazakh and Uzbek languages. And also, of course, in Uzbek and Kazakh cultures, there are, there are a lot of other words to express a good behavior. And a good behavior also very synonymous in our culture to being like moral, right? And um, even though this is not my um, expertise to study morality or religion or behavior, I was interested 
in schooling, in the choice of languages. It just happened that this um, idea has been very salient. And as I studied different uh, policies and speeches of presidents, I've seen how they also, uh, so the discourse of being spiritual, being moral, and that's what it means to be Kazakh, or that's what it means to be Uzbek, is very much present. So in those kind of official state um, documents. And even very recent, um, 2017, I think uh, Nazarbayev's um, speech in terms of what what future of Kazakhstan looks like and who are Kazakh people, right? Um, so that this word of more morality, moral or spiritual, it comes up a lot. Um, so as I was talking to my participants, and they they self-identified themselves first of all. Let me say, and. Uh, uh, so they chose the ethnicities themselves, or they would say if they if the, if they come from a very multi-ethnic family. Um, and I was talking to them about why their parents sent them to certain schools. So I had I had participants going to Russian attending Russian schools in 80s, for example, right? And then I had participants who attended uh, like Uyghur school and because she was a girl and her parents wanted her to know the language and then the also all the traditions that come with the Uyghur language which is which is a culture so and um, i thought that this is interesting and especially in terms of this uh idea of morality and so let me read this first quote for you uh this is from my participant in kazakhstan and he uh, he defined himself as uh, being ethnically Kazakh. Um, he was studying Arabic, so he was majoring in Arabic studies at that time. And so he says that he att I attended Russian school, but I want my kids to attend Kazakh schools because there is more moral, more immoral behavior in Russian schools now. They smoke, drink, talk about different things. Of course, this exists in Kazakh schools too, but to much lesser extent. So he uh, he says that in his narrative where he talks about going to Russian school first and that everyone in his family traditionally went to Russian school, so during Soviet times, right? And he was older participant, so he went to school um, towards the end of the 80s. <clears throat> so he started school toward the eight, uh, end of 80s. And um, he talks about Russian being this language uh, which makes people clean and accurate um, uh, and respected. Uh, so that, those were the ideologies of Russian um, when he went to school, right? But now in kind of independent Kazakhstan, he says that even though he went to Russian school, he wants his children to attend Kazakh school now. So this is kind of that, um, what I was talking about, Kranatov, so uh, comparing what was back then to what is now. And uh, he says that now Russian uh, schools uh, offer, like Russian schools have more immoral behavior, and by immoral behavior he uh, talks about smoking, drinking, and talking about different things, I guess, um, so different topics that are not appropriate for the age of a school child. So, um, and he says that this is to lesser extent in Kazakh schools. So that's why he opts to for his children to go to Kazakh schools. 
Uh, my other participant who identified herself to be ethnically Uzbek and Uyghur, so her dad was Uzbek, her mom was Uyghur, but then at the different points of interview, she would say all of two or, or she would say I'm Kazakh. So um, she says the following, even though I have not lived in Soviet Union, I think that most of our knowledge of morality comes from the cultural norms during Soviet Union. I think these norms are more followed in Kazakh schools or Uyghur and Uzbek schools rather than Russian schools. So I would send my kids to Kazakh schools. I myself attended Uyghur school. So um, I, saw, I thought this was also interesting because, um, well, she, she says she herself attended Uyghur school, first of all, because her um, brothers, who were born much earlier than her and went to school during Soviet times, uh, she talks about them as being very russified. And this is something her mother didn't like. So that's why when she had to go in mid 90s to school her mother decided to send her to uyghur schools and she was saying that my mother wanted to fix the mistake so that's how she described the process that she wanted to fix the mistake with with her brothers so and she says that she said that this idea knowledge of morality comes from the soviet times but these norms are more followed in um, Kazakh schools now, so in more like Central Asian schools like Uyghur, Uzbek, rather than Russian schools. And this, both ideas were very common across all of the stories uh, that are collected in Kazakhstan among participants who did not identify themselves as Russian, right? So every other, uh, so Kazakh, Uyghur, I had English, uh, Uzbek uh, participants, they all talked in a similar manner. And they did talk always about the education in Soviet Union or uh, studying Rush, like studying in the Russian school uh, through the Russian language as being good, as being valuable, as, play, as being prestigious. Um, and one participant says, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not dirty because I learned Russian. So, um, at that, so that's how I describe it at that moment, right? But within the independent post-Soviet Kazakhstan, Russian schools turn into those spaces where, in addition to language, students are believed to learn a lot of immoral behavior, and this is what my participants uh, did not seem to like. So, and I thought it was interesting again because schools are not just language spaces. There are also spaces for moral learning, and this is very important for parents. And I think in the literature on multilingualism, people focus a lot on this idea of just what language brings, language value, and more of a material value. And so we can see that in Central Asian communities, this spirituality and morality are very uh, big ideas as well. And so this repeats across participants. This becomes especially true in the narratives of women or of men who are talking about their daughters or their future children who are daughters. So females are always talked in within the context of sending them to Uyghur, Uzbek or Kazakh schools, definitely not Russian. But uh, this has been true for male uh, students as well, or like they are. Uh, boys, children. Um, okay, and then another idea I wanted to speak about is uh, this idea of Uzbekness. So the, uh, I'm moving now to uh, Uzbekistan. 
<laughs> so my data here comes from Uzbekistan. And if you have heard about Uzbek Chilik, uh, or if you have read Ahd um, Khalid, uh, for example, who writes about the rise of empire in Uzbekistan, so he talks extensively about being uh, Uzbekness, right? And this is the whole um, ideology that have arise that has arisen with the independence and a lot of policies and reforms uh, and have been put forward to push it and also like our previous president right Islam Karimov wrote a lot of books um, that were, were uh, that focused on this idea of Uzbekness and this idea wasn't just um, delivered through like media let's say but it also was delivered through schools right through education so i myself remember uh, going to school and having different classes that were about uh patriotism and um, so like the calling of the nation was one of the class um i remember so and in that class we would study the books written by the president right so the, there were a lot of different ways through which this discourse was circulated and my participants in Uzbekistan um, did kind. I feel like they did pro project this discourse a lot in their own stories. And here I am going to show you the data that comes from my Tajik participants, so students who spoke Tajik language. I'm not saying that these are the students who identify themselves as Tajik because uh, basically almost every student i talk to in uzbekistan regardless of their their parent or like them being kazakh let's say or having kazakh roots or tajik roots or speaking any of these languages at home they would say that they were uzbeks so this is something that was different from kazakhstan in kazakhstan i saw more of this um plurality div diversity in terms of uh, students um saying that who they were right but in Uzbekistan, uh, Kazakh, I had students who spoke Kazakh at home, at home, Tajik, um, Tatar. And so they would say they were Uzbeks, they all would say that they were Uzbeks, except the Russians. Uh, so students who were Russians, they would just identify themselves as a Russian. So, um, and um, also uh, is it was interesting to look at the data coming from Tajik participants because I felt like there was a lot of kind of, it's called narrative disalignment. So where participants contradict their own statements as they go through, uh, as they tell their stories. And I didn't notice it as much in other participants' stories. So it seemed like their identities were more in the story, at least, it, they were more fixed. And uh, identities of my um, participants who also spoke Tajik were always different, always um, kind of uh, shifting. So I thought that this data might be interesting um, to look at. And here I colored um, different parts of the data. So showing, first of all, what languages participants are always referring to, but also sh uh, showing the pronouns. Um, or like the keywords where we can see if participant is claiming belonging or aligning identity or disaligning their identity. So pronouns can help in, in that way. Uh, so let's look at the first data. So here a student says, oh, uh, by the way, also these are from original English, while the data I showed you earlier was from Russian, both 
both of them. Although I had Kazakh and Uyghur participant and they talked Russian in the interview, this one was actually in English. So um, the participant says, Uzbek is the most important language to me. We cannot speak Tajik in the capital. One has to accept their culture and their language. My mother tongue is Tajik, also Uzbek. I speak in Tajik, but I am from Uzbekistan and my ethnicity is Uzbek. In Uzbek, there are some accents that we cannot comprehend. So I think this is very, it's a very short uh, excerpt, right? But it uh, does so much in terms of just uh, kind of uh, going against all, all those theories that people write about um, in a scholarship on uh, languages. So like language ideologies. So here, uh, as you see, participant starts with Uzbek as being important uh, to him, but then uh, he kind of makes this circle, right? The individual, it's not no more individual circle, it's we cannot speak Tajik. So uh, in the capital. So, um, and I think that was just to show that Tajik is spoken in this certain region by this certain people. And so the student also says that mother tongue is Tajik, but also Uzbek. So this is also interesting, again, because in scholarship, therefore, this idea of mother tongue, well, original mother tongue is about saving languages, home languages of students. But because it's usually in singular, um, there is this ideology that it's just like one language that is your mother tongue. But as you see, for this participant, there are two. Right, and then um, the participant actually says, because I am from Uzbekistan, and because my ethnicity, well, that even though I speak Tajik, I'm from Uzbekistan, and my ethnicity is Uzbek, right? So this one is interesting as well, because it talks uh, about this ethno-linguistic identity, uh, which we do not necessarily see here in its like full power, because uh, the participant, is positioning himself in Uzbekistan, being from Uzbek of Uzbekistanisty, even though most of the time this person probably talks Tajik uh, in his daily life, right? So, and then uh, in later during the interview, the participant says, there, in Uzbek there are some accents that we cannot comprehend. In this sentence, you can see full disalignment of identity because in Uzbek it becomes something else which is not mine and then there are some accents that we cannot comprehend and we here really refers to speakers of tajik right um or even well it could be all speakers of uzbek who are uh, in this tajik speaking city uh so and then also showing that there is certain type of um linguistic kind of insecurity in uzbek Another participant says the following. I speak Tajik at home. Everyone around me speaks Tajik. I had a hard time learning Uzbek, but it was required in school. My language or region of my nationality is Uzbek. I don't say I'm Tajik because I live in Uzbekistan. I'm proud to be Uzbek. There is a difference between my Tajik and authentic Tajik. It's my duty to say that I'm Uzbek because I live here. It's part of patriotism. So the student is very explicit um in her answer right so she 
Again, Tajik being a home language, and usually home languages are associated with ethno-linguistic identity. And then uh, even her uh, surroundings, in her surroundings, everyone speaks Tajik. And she even had hard time learning Uzbek at school, which means that she didn't really uh, converse in Uzbek or maybe use it as much before going to school, right? But since it was a required language, she had to learn it. And this is true because in Bukhara and Samarkand, people speak Tajik, they grow up speaking Tajik, and they speak it quite well. However, they never really uh, educated formally in it. So no one teaches um, us like how to write or read in Tajik, although we can do it because it's in Cyrillic, right? Uh, but there was no formal education. So, and then she continues saying that her language and original of her nationality is Uzbek. So this is interesting as well because, well, again, she is uh, talking about the same um, image of being Uzbek as the first participant. And as you see, she says, my language, right? So it's almost like, well, Tajik is my language, but Uzbek also is my language. And that her origins are Uzbek. And this is, again, interesting. So this participant was from Bukharam. And um, among the Tajik speakers in Uzbekistan, Bukhara is known to be the city where all Tajiks just uh, uh, accepted the Uzbek identity, like in their passports as well. So at some point they just changed um, their um, uh, ethnic identity, right? While, for example, in Samarkand, uh, they are more proud because m more people have kind of retained their identity as being Tajik, and it's written Tajik in their passport. So, and then she says that um, again because of the territory, Uzbekistan is my country, so I cannot say I'm Tajik, which is doesn't again it doesn't mean maybe that she doesn't feel Tajik, but she cannot say it. And she continues by saying, well, I'm proud to be Uzbek. And also she further supports this statement by saying how her Tajik is different from authentic Tajik. And this is another, uh, another method or another strategy of um, kind of this nation branding, right? How you brand your nation. So if it is about Uzbekness, ideas, ideology, or discourse of being Uzbek, then you and there is a, another country where ta, there more people speak Tajik, right? So your uh, other language becomes inauthentic in a way. So that's how people start perceiving it. And because Uzbek is a standard language and they learn it at school, of course, this would be authentic Uzbek because uh, they can claim kind of ownership of Uzbek rather than Tajik, right? And um, Again, the same. The participant says the same phrase that I live here, so I am Uzbek. And these are all. These all really echo the this um, Uzbekness discourse. My final uh, excerpt uh, comes from another participant, who actually. Uh, so it was a male participant. So he says, my parents come from an old city where people speak Tajik. Sometimes we try to speak Uzbek because it's our national language. I first went to Russian school, but my mom transferred me to Uzbek school because she found Russian schools to promote an inappropriate behavior. Most Uzbek people come from rural regions. They don't try to acquire Tajik, but I don't see any difference between Uzbek and Tajik cultures since I was born to Uzbek family. So this is also interesting and also uh, 
reminds reminds you actors from Kazakhstan, right? So these are some of the topics that I didn't ask them at all. So these were not the questions I was asking them about behavior, but they just were saying it themselves. And I just thought this is like coincidence and all the similarities. So this participant comes from the old city of Bukhara and um, Again, it's not just a coincidence to say an old city. Old city in Bukhara is known to be very heavily Tajik-speaking place. So um, because people there and their families and their parents have lived there for a long, long time, and um, so that's why you would hear more Tajik in the old cities than in the rest of Bukhara, right? Um, so and then the participant says that we try to speak Uzbek. So he his family so that people that he knows around him they try to speak uzbek since it's a national language our national language so again this alignment with this national identity and then he says well i first went to russian school but then transferred to uzbek right because of this inappropriate behavior and um that was very interesting. It did come up in other interviews with Uzbek participants, also not as much as with uh, participants I interviewed in Kazakhstan, but um, it has the similarities. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so it, Uzbek people coming from rural regions is basically he's making comment on how Bukhara now as a center is being influenced a lot by this migration of uh, people who are primary Uzbek speakers moving to to city, but they do not try to acquire Tajik. So, uh, and many people in Bukhara then try to adapt and speak Uzbek. Uh, but this is I'm adding because I know <laughs> I know the context. And um, again, uh, the participant is kind of finishing the story by saying that there are no differences between Uzbek and Tajik cultures and then saying I was born to Uzbek family. Again, as you see, these identities are shifting or statements shifting. It's almost like, I don't believe you. Why do you say Tajik and then Uzbek again? Uh, but that is, that is how it is. And that's very natural for many of the participants that I interviewed uh, in Uzbekistan who were Tajik speakers. And this also um, kind of proves the statement that uh, some of the scholars uh, Central, of Central Asia made um, before in 2000s where they said that um, Tajiks and Uzbeks um, do not really differentiate their culture. So the only difference that appears is in language. And uh, so as you see here, um, again, participants talking about schooling, talking about Uzbek being a national language, feeling Uzbek are um, shaped, um, I believe, by this uh, also ideas of Uzbekness. Finally, my other findings that I wanted to show you is uh, actually coming from both countries where I did a comparative analysis. So here I looked at English and of course other languages as well, but primarily English and the ideologies of English, because all of my participants were multilingual, but the only foreign language that they all shared was English, right? So and which was what was interesting for me is that um, my participants in Kazakhstan uh, kind of exerted this idea of ownership over English. Linguistic ownership is a strong idea where you could really claim ownership when you are positioned as a native speaker of the language. 
So when you look at the country where there was no history with like English speaking countries and it has not been spoken or it's not spoken really at, uh, on a day to day basis, when, and you see this concept of ownership emerging, so it's very, very uh, new. And I think it's amazing. So, and it's going to be very new for uh, for the field as well. Um, and I'm writing an article. I've written an article on it, but it's not published yet. And this idea of linguistic insecurity, which I saw more among uh, my participants in Uzbekistan. And I will tell you how it is different. So, in terms of linguistic insecurity, let's see the excerpt. Everyone speaks Uzbek and Russian, and like in our city, many people also speak Tajik. I need to excel in English if I want to go abroad. So majority of my, like 98% of students I talked in Uzbekistan spoke to me in English at all times, because it was the way for them to practice their language, to enhance, uh, to kind of brush up on their language. And um, uh, they were, they were in their stories. They were putting English as this commodity, right? So English, this is like neo neoliberal ideology of English bringing a lot of goods to you. English takes you abroad. English takes one um, like uh, to English-speaking countries where they can study, they can work. So I have other excerpts where participants also said how they can find jobs, earn money, and send back home. And when they talk about other uh, languages that they speak, they do not really essentialize them or make them important in, in contrast to, like in comparison to English, because everybody speaks all these languages within their immediate environment. And however, in the imagined future, in the ideal future, uh, English is the language that would bring them uh, kind of more prosperity. So all, uh, all the stories um, of my Uzbek participants were really focused on English being this, um, uh, like a way, a pathway to upward mobility and economic stability. And uh, kind of their discourse of local languages not being very useful outside of the immediate context also showed that certain insecurity and them choosing to speak English at all times and always trying to learn English, even though they did really well during interviews speaking English, also shows a certain type of insecurity. And they also talked a lot about competition, how you have to win scholarships to go abroad and how many people are uh, learning IELTS. And IELTS TOEFL are the <clears throat> this test that uh, measure English proficiency. Well, in Kazakhstan, students really talked in a different way about English. Well, in a similar way, of course, as well. English was regarded as opportunistic in Kazakhstan. However, when they were giving, telling me different stories about how English is, should be valued in their country, they were really seeing using English within Kazakhstan. So it was not always the language that takes you abroad. It's also the language that makes you a true citizen of Kazakhstan. So, and I thought that was very interesting and that goes back to policy, right? This trilingual policy in Kazakhstan and how it has perhaps been already um, affecting uh, ideologies of students. And so they, my one student says, I think we should improve the knowledge of English so that the officer could tell him what he did wrong. And this is interesting. This comes from my Uyghur participant. So, and she talks about the situation where she sees a, a driver, like she says, a foreigner from South Korea uh, has a, like makes a, 
mistake uh, on the road, so breaks the rule, and the officer stops him and tells, tells him that he did something wrong in uh, Kazakhstan, but he didn't understand. So what happens is he just kept going, right? Because officer cannot charge him if he didn't understand. So she says that's why they, we all need to start speaking English at all levels so that uh, people understand what they do wrong. And I thought this was interesting because they see um, the life in Kazakhstan is already mixed with people who come from other countries. So there is this necessity of speaking English on a daily basis. And then another participant says, we should move English up to the level of Russian and make it a second official language instead. So and so this also was very interesting narrative that came up usually among my participants who were like stronger Kazakh language advocates. And what they were saying is that, well, trilingualism is good, but in order to achieve a full proficiency in English, we should replace Russian with it in terms of status. So that way we can be this global, um, global recognized um, country, like economic power. And again, I thought this was interesting because students, uh, social imaginaries, in, involve English. They see themselves see, uh, using English. They see others using English within their country. Well, Uzbekistan was a, a, uh, like opposite story. So I'm I'm almost done. Two minutes, and. Um, I'll just I'll just say this quickly and you can ask me more questions. So if we talk about like the first findings that I showed you, what is interesting about it is that you don't just look at so in order to make certain claims about ideologies, you have to look at certain time and space and even moral personhood to say so what what is important for the participant or what participant finds to be important for him at that very moment, right? And that involves, uh, that kind of shapes private language planning decisions. So private means within the family. Uh, in terms of Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, like the civic consciousness, I was really interested at how all participants, even though they spoke other languages that they were not taught officially, they never expressed any type of fear of losing the language or culture. They were all quite confident in terms of using the language within their immediate environment. Um, however, most of their kind of identity alignment had to do with being Uzbek citizen and loyalty in the state. While I saw Kazakhstan, uh, and that's my conclusion, like my own opinion, did a really great job of this nation branding the country as a trilingual state because it in, it kind of offered that necessary discourse for people to claim a trilingual identity as citizens of Kazakhstan. And I think this is what, if you can claim, and this is what gives you power, and that's how you own the language. So, um, and then there are different impl implications for research teaching and policy, but I'm not going to go into it. And if you are interested, you can ask me. And so I'll stop here. Thank you.